0: We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation.
1: Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data?
0: Now that's what I call science. Hello, listeners. You're tuned into That's What I Call Science the weekly radio and podcast show that brings independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Lutruwita, Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station, so head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palo Pakana. We're recording here on Lutruwita, but as we are a podcast... I'd like to also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, our listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here, I pay my respects to elders past and present. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Simon Salapur. Now, listeners, we've got quite an exciting episode for you today because we're talking about something that's not often discussed, and our guest is tuning in from far, far away in New York. She's originally from Tassie, but she went on an adventure to America to follow her studies and I'm excited to hear about it from her. So our guest, Dr. Anne Thresher, is a philosopher of science and environmental ethicist working on emerging technologies and risk. Currently, she works on the ethical obligations of scientists as they do research, with a particular focus on environmental and social impacts and risks. And originally started out studying physics and philosophy at Sydney University before completing her PhD at UC San Diego in the philosophy of science. Hi, Anne, thank you so much for tuning in today, despite the big time difference. To start us off with, can you tell us a bit about your career journey from studying physics and philosophy to your current work in ethics in emerging technology?
2: Yeah, so I uh, my sort of career trajectory was this big circle in really weird ways I wasn't expecting. So um, growing up in Tassie, my parents were both biologists. Um, they moved to Tasmania to work for CSIRO, uh, working on things like climate change and invasive species. And as a kid, I always knew I wanted to be either a scientist or a ballerina or possibly a cowgirl, depending on what age you caught me at. And so uh, when I got the opportunity, I ended up at Sydney University doing uh, two degrees, one in physics and one in philosophy, because I really wanted to figure out how the world worked. Like, I was really just fascinated by these fundamental questions about like what is the world and how does reality sort of like happen? I did this double degree and uh, end up really, really interested in philosophy of science and particularly philosophy of physics. So uh, as you said, off I wandered to California where I did a PhD. Um, so my PhD started out in philosophy of physics. I was working a lot of stuff doing space-time topologies and the philosophy of time, but over the course of my time there, the topic sort of shifted, as I think it often does during a PhD. And eventually I realized that what I actually was really interested in were these questions to do with climate change, to do with uh, invasive species, to do with the way that science impacts the world around us in really fundamental and important ways that have massive social implications. And so I started working on questions about like why we should trust science, how science works, um, what our ethical obligations of scientists ought to be. And by the time I finished my PhD last year, um, I'd sort of end up in this space I wasn't expecting starting. And so uh, out of that came uh, this book that I recently published on why we should trust science called The Tangle of Science. Um, and my current position, so at the moment, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford, where I work with the new Stanford Door School of Sustainability. Um, and they're trying to figure out better ways to solve these sort of big questions to climate change, invasive species and the energy crisis. And so I've sort of ended up in this great space where I get to work with a bunch of scientists. You know, I love science. It's something that I have a degree in. I, um, I'm really passionate about the way that science can help with these problems. And at the same time, I um, sort of end up in a space where I'm trying to figure out the best ways to help science solve those problems. So the way I can think about it is that science often puts a lot of options on the table. Um, It tells us what we can do. But ethics, I'm an ethicist, ethics tells us what we ought to be doing, right? Science gives us a lot of power. and with power comes risks, comes responsibilities, to paraphrase a Marvel comic. Um, And so... uh, as an ethicist, a lot of my work is working with the scientists and policymakers to figure out the best ways to make sure that science is getting us, uh, is solving problems as best they can while minimizing the possible damages that come with, you know, these quite invasive and significant technologies.
0: Wow, that's a lot to be able to cover and bring together two which could be two very different or things that in the past might have been conflicting to have philosophy and science. And because you've got that sort of, we think of science as that quantitative type of approach, whereas philosophy is much more qualitative. So you mentioned there your book, The Tangle of Science. How did that come about? Can you tell us about the experience of making that book and more about what the contents are?
2: Uh, the book is this like topic that sort of uh, sprung up. I was working with this very famous philosopher at UC San Diego, Nancy Cartwright. Nancy Cartwright uh, does a lot of work in the uh, foundations of laws. Uh, she works with the British Parliament on a lot of stuff to do with why that you should trust science, how science works. She was one of my supervisors. And the two of us got to talking about the way that science sort of works and why it is that science is so reliable as a way for gathering knowledge information. And this is a topic that philosophers of science have historically worked very extensively on. Um, we think a lot about why science works the way it does and why it's different, for example, than religion or pseudoscience um, or, you know, astrology. Um, like we were trying to figure out like, what it is about this, the things that scientists do that sets them apart? And so Nancy and I got to talking. We ended up sort of spending a couple of summers researching and thinking through these problems. We brought some of the people on board. Ended up with five of us uh, working on this book um, so the book sort of delves into what is it about the structures of science that means that we can trust the way that science works. When we sort of talk a lot about this network of uh, structures and principles and methodologies and experiments and all the things that sort of go into making science what it is. Um, the book sort of examines how those things connect together in the right kinds of ways to give us reliability. Um, such that you can, you know, launch people to the moon and build bridges and perform laser eye surgery.
0: Where can our listeners find the book? Where is it available?
2: It's available, it's published through Oxford University Press. Um, I'm not sure it's available in Australia, but it's certainly available online here in America and in the UK.
1: Wow, that's awesome. Uh, Stick with us for part two as we dive into Anne's current work in ethics in science and technology. Listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about science ethics. My name is Simin Salapur, and I'm joined by Oli Dov along with our expert guest, Dr. Anne Thresher from Stanford. Before we go into current work, uh, let's jump back a bit. What was the topic of uh, your PhD? Could you please explain a little bit about what you've done uh, in your PhD?
2: So my PhD was sort of a mishmash of a bunch of different topics that I was interested in connected via the thread of philosophy of science and how philosophy can help with some of the problems science is encountering. So uh, the three topics, one was in synthetic biology. I work a lot with synthetic biologists on the ethics of uh, genetic modification and gene drives. So I wrote a paper thinking about the risks of gene drive technologies when it comes to controlling invasive species and how to think about our own obligations in a world where we kind of have the ability, we're rapidly developing the ability to deliberately wipe out species um, in the name of conservation. You know, think about eliminating rabbits from New Zealand or cop carp from Australia. Um, and they are these big, sexy technologies that have been referred to as silver bullets for the invasive species crisis. But because they're so big and so intensive, they come with a lot of risks associated with them, right? Like when something that uh, sort of highly interventionist goes wrong and go very wrong and so one of the things i work on and my phd was on was how to think about those risks and how to conceptualize them in cases where we may actually think that it's it's better for us to use these things even with these serious risks on the table then i also write a little bit in my phd about uh the ethical obligations of scientists um and how to think about the harms of scientific research we often think that uh, science's job is to put options on the table um and then the ethicist sort of steps in and says yes to that option no to that option like do this one like you know weighing up like human interest is that interest like we should pick that thing to try and solve this problem when in fact there is a lot of ethical decision making to be made even in what types of research we're trying to do right like what kinds of options we put on the table can radically change the way that we look at solutions and so uh Part of my thesis was considering how to conceptualize those harms, thinking about how scientists ought to be doing research, what their duty of care was towards the public, towards society, towards the environment. And then uh, I also took some chapters from the book that I wrote. Um, ended up being part of the thesis as well. And that was sort of thinking a little more in terms of what we call conceptual engineering and philosophy. So thinking about the way that we use concepts and the way that we structure them. And so uh, I wrote a lot about actually political theory. So a lot of my work touches on policy. Um, So I was working on questions about why democracies uh, don't go to war with other democracies and thinking about some of these broad implications for the way that science can help us understand uh, why these regularities happen in political theory? It's a, just a purely like a chaotic sort of mishmash of a bunch of different things that, uh, again, all sort of connected by like, well, what can philosophy help us solve in these spaces?
0: That is an awful lot to cover in a thesis. It's very impressive. What were the main takeaways? Did you, were you able to sum up? Okay, so philosophy can do this for science. Was there an easy answer, or is it there's more questions than we can answer?
2: There's never an easy answer when it comes to philosophy and ethics, right? But it was, in many ways, I hate to say, if it was easy answers, we have shoved it out to science already. Like, uh, we uh, often philosophy of this sort of analogy that, you know, like, as I said earlier, like, philosophy sort of spins off successful fields, you know, as we figure out the laws of physics, like, philosophers did that, and it sort of spins physics off its own separate field to do its own thing. The same thing happens for you know, uh, psychology and cognitive science and chemistry and biology, right? As I said, the original people in those fields were philosophers working to try and figure out from first principles how these fields worked. And so philosophy has sort of successfully spun off all these fields and we're sort of left with the problem child, which is ethics. Um, We can't seem to figure out how to codify ethics in ways that like are clean. Instead, we are sort of, it's a lot of messy trying to figure out the best ways to handle these cases. And ethics is just a messy field. Philosophy is messy in some ways, um, in the same ways that a lot of science can be messy when you really dig into it. And so uh, I think that what I've learned the most from this PhD was just there there are no easy answers. Everything is context-based. A lot of it requires like nuanced expertise as you delve into these questions. Um, that's one of the reasons I find what I do really interesting. And one of the reasons that I think it's important to have science ethics be a part of the conversation in science, because these aren't easy questions. There are things that philosophy and ethicists, maybe the tools, to bring to the table to help with these questions. And in many ways, it's unfair to ask scientists to do these things on their own because they're trained in very particular types of specialties, but they're often not trained in how to think about the ethical implications of the work they're doing. And so having science ethicists on board to help navigate those kinds of questions can be really helpful and meaningful.
0: In terms of going about answering those questions, do you have... Is there a lot of past literature or past academic journals that are also e- exploring these topics and looking into it? Or are you looking into a big black hole of how do you even go about studying it?
2: Yeah, so the good news is that we've been thinking about ethics and the way science works since the beginning of humanity, right? Certainly in the Western tradition, we can trace this back to the Greeks. You know, one of the original biologists, Aristotle, was also one of the original Western ethicists. Um, so we've been thinking about these things for a very long time and while they're messy and very context-based we have a lot of very smart people who over thousands of years have worked out ways to think about these problems that can help us figure out better and worse ways to solve them well, one of the things I like to say about ethics is that there is almost never a right answer but there are definitely wrong answers and they're definitely better answers mm-hmm. and so um, we can sort of take you know these Very, very well developed ethical theories—you know, Kant's deontological approach, Aristotle's virtue ethics, um, you know, consequentialism, utilitarianism—these like very well developed theories—and use them to help us with these modern problems. So, yeah, it's it's not really a black hole. It's um, more about taking what we've got and figuring out how to apply them to these specific cases. The the novel bit here is really the technologies and the kinds of capabilities that people have these days. We're just getting better at intervening in the environment in the world around us and that just means that the risks are more extreme not necessarily different
1: wow it's a lot of things to kind of process and going through and a lot of question marks coming up um i want to ask a question about your current work in your current work you engage with ethical obligations of scientists and engineers of course as they do research, uh, can you give our listeners some examples of why ethics is so important in research specifically and uh, what your focus is?
2: I've probably got two major focuses right now, um, both of which uh, I think are very good examples of why ethics is important in sort of the science and engineering space. So... One of my major hats right now, so I I work at the Stanford Door School of Sustainability. Um, I'm trying to sort of work just, again, a brand new school. Part of my job is to embed values thinking and ethical thinking into the new school and the way that they're setting up research and working through these problems to do with sustainability. Um, And within that, I do a lot of work in things like synthetic biology. Now, synthetic biology is sort of this field that deals with uh, building new biological systems. and uh there's huge amounts of ethics involved in just thinking about what kinds of research we're doing so one of the big examples right now is uh the genetic modification of mosquitoes to eliminate malaria um so there are groups i I worked with some when i was at uc san diego Um, there are other groups in the uk who are genetically modifying mosquitoes in one of two ways either to make them biologically incapable of carrying and transmitting malaria or uh, to wipe out the subspecies of mosquito that can carry malaria. And it's, I think, pretty obvious why this, you should be talking to ethicists as you're thinking about these technologies, right? There's, um, we're talking about either one way or another sort of wiping out a species, either you're genetically modifying every member of that species to be essentially sort of maybe even a new species of mosquito as you modify them, or you're thinking about wiping the species out altogether. Now there are a bunch of environmental ethics questions that come up with that right what are do do we have the right to change these species what are our obligations as humans as you know either caretakers or curators or or people who live as part of the environmental network around us right like how should we think about our role in modifying our environment very deliberately on the other hand you have malaria one of the worst diseases to ever affect mankind that kills millions of people millions of children a year Right? And so there's these really complicated factors we're weighing up as we think through this. And so, uh, the ethics of this is certainly non-trivial. And it ranges from questions of like intervention into the environment to like, who is the right to release this technology? Mosquitoes don't respect international boundaries. You know, if you release these mosquitoes in India, they're going to get to Pakistan. They're going to go to Sri Lanka. They're going to spread. Same thing goes for anywhere you release them in Africa. We're actually talking about releasing them currently in California. And so there are all these ethical obligations and questions about like, who has the right to do this? Who has the right to take these risks? Um, and how do we weigh that up against the human lives involved? So, um, a lot of my work when it comes to the environmental space and environmental technologies, you know, so that's sort of thinking about like biomedical stuff, but the same technologies are being used to deal with invasive species, to think about the even de extinction, bringing back previously existing people. So, we've talked about de extincting the thylacine, you know, how do we conceptualize these kinds of things or our obligations to the environment? So the role of the environmental ethicist in these things, and my role is often to work with the scientists to think through how to weigh up these values um, and how to make these decisions in ways that provide the most benefit, while also respecting all the various parties involved, both human and non-human. the other project i'm kind of working on right now that i think is a good example of this is i'm actually working with a group of uh, astronomers out at harvard and smithsonian so i'm coming back to my physics route uh so i'm working with a bunch of astronomers right now out at harvard and smithsonian um, to think about how to build telescopes in ethical ways so um astronomy has a long history of colonialism of being associated with the military of expansionism um i don't know Many of your listeners have probably heard a lot about some issues happening in Mauna Kea right now in Hawaii um, to do with the 30 meters telescope. There are a lot of protests to do with the way that the scientists have come in and taken land traditionally owned by the Hawaiian people. It landed as culturally significant. Um, It's strongly recommend people to research this. I think it's a really interesting uh, problem and it it brings up all these past issues of colonialism. And so uh, one of my my hats right now is I'm, I'm leading a group for this astronomy collaboration. We're talking about building potentially five brand new telescopes across the globe in places that have had histories of colonization of economic and scientific exploitation. Um, And we're talking about better ways to build in collaboration with communities, right? We have ethical obligations towards the people around these telescopes to build in ways that respect their um, culturally significant places, that um, respect uh, what they want out of these partnerships with the scientists to ensure that the benefits of these things aren't just the scientists flying in, doing their research and flying out again, not doing what we call extractive science. Right. So um, it's those kinds of projects where I think that the ethics is really important. I think these are two of many, many examples where like, having scientists involved with ethicists is really important to doing science in the ways that are beneficial to everyone, rather than just the scientists or a limited amount of humanity.
1: That's amazing. I'm an astrophysicist myself. and working with the radio telescope. Definitely the ethics is very important that sometimes uh, scientists and researchers not, you know, paying enough attention to that. For example, I myself, I was using all these telescopes, but I never, you know, thought about that. And it's, it's amazing that having you here to, talking through this and make it clear for everybody that science is important, but you have to be prepared for the outcomes and thinking through a lot of other aspects. And could you please uh, give us some more information how it is working and actually in astronomy, because you mentioned you had some works uh, towards astronomy.
2: Yeah, so uh, astronomy is a really interesting case for uh, what we call ethical sighting. So sighting is a novel to astronomy a lot of areas of science have to think about where they're building things and how to build things so uh astronomy uh isn't isn't the only place where you have to care about where you're building things and how you're working with local communities to get permission but it is in many ways a very extreme version of that because uh the kinds of places so i i don't work with uh sort of uh the large-scale radio telescope groups so i'm looking at individual you know nine to 13 meter telescopes is the size what we'll be building um, but a lot of those telescopes need to be uh, high. Um, they need to be dry. Um, they need to be remote, very far away from people. Um, and those sort of factors tend to correlate to mountaintops. Um, but mountaintops often mean very specific ecosystems, right? Very rare ecosystems, often, which means there's a lot of environmental impact to bulldozing a road to the top and building a bunch of things. Um, it means that they tend to be poor, right? It's a remote area. It tends to be less politically represented. It often means indigenous um it mountains tend to be culturally significant um not just religious but you know people, people hike or care a lot about the mountaintops and building a giant telescope on the top that's at least aesthetically jarring um and uh astronomy tends to be very international so you need long baselines for doing the kind of to, like telescope work where we're doing where you're trying to sort of build planet sized uh arrays Um, And that means you're often building in places that have histories of colonialism, because a lot of places have histories of colonialism, Um, and places where science, unfortunately, has a long history of going into places and being relatively exploitative, um, of taking advantage of local cultures and communities. Um, And astronomy is certainly no exception to that. Um, And so uh, astronomy has this difficulty when it comes to where to build telescopes that, so, as I mentioned earlier, it's boiled over and not just in places like Mauna Kea, but you know, the square kilometer array in South Africa has had some issues, some places in Chile have had issues, um, where it's, you know, the, the local communities have objected to the fact that scientists from especially, you know, Western wealthy democracies have come in, just built whatever they want to build and wandered out again. Um and so uh, there's a lot of ethics involved in those kinds of projects. And so I lead a responsible siding group. Um, we're working with uh, what's called the Next Generation Event Horizon Telescope Collaboration. Um, we're sort of also broader than that. We're doing some collaboration with other astronomy groups, um, some of the uh, gravitational wave groups who are looking to build. Um, we're sort of talking with them about where to build things and how to go about building things in ways that uh, work with local communities and involve Asking them what they want out of these collaborations Uh, you've mentioned doing outreach right doing outreach allowing uh, funding local PhDs for students that sort of thing to make sure that the benefits of this research are reaching. Not just the people at you know top tier astronomical institutions, but people on the ground in these places that are hosting these telescopes.
1: What role do we as scientists need to play in taking the initiative for these discussions that you men- uh, mentioned uh, versus seeking advice from others?
2: Yeah, this is a really good question, I think, because a lot of scientists aren't necessarily trained to think about the ethics of the work they're doing. Um, you know, I have a physics degree. I don't think anyone ever mentioned the ethics of doing science during at, at any point during my physics degree. Um It's something that we don't really emphasize when it comes to training our scientists. And sort of, as I try to gesture at throughout this, it's something that we need to care about, right? You're not doing your work in isolation. Science is part of society and it has impact on society. And that means that scientists have obligations towards society and the environment and everything around them. So I think at minimum, scientists have an obligation to think through the work they're doing, um, to uh, stop and think about what the... Benefits of their research is, but also what are the potential worst cases for their research? How might this be exploited? How might they be impacting people around them in ways they haven't thought about yet? And how can they minimize the harms of what they're doing? Now, as I said earlier, scientists aren't experts in this, and in many ways, it's unfair to ask them to be experts in this. You know, if you're an expert in you know astrophysics, right? Asking you to also know ethical theory and like all this stuff in the background is kind of asking too much in many ways. What's not asking too much is to have some idea of what your responsibilities might be and to know that, you know, sometimes you have an obligation to reach out and get more expertise in these spaces to work with not just philosophers and ethicists, but social scientists and historians and people who have expertise, who can bring that to the table to help with these kinds of projects.
0: That was incredibly fascinating to listen to and to see a new perspective, because as someone who works in marine ecology, exactly, you don't. Often, I mean, I put in animal ethics for every field work, but I don't necessarily think about ethics beyond that. But it is a really important thing to bring into the work. Unfortunately, we are out of time. And while I think we could keep going for hours on this topic, because there's lots more that we would want to talk to you about and it could stem into lots of other conversations we will unfortunately have to wrap up so thank you so much for talking to us today Anne, and thank you listeners for tuning into that's what i call science we love bringing you stem related content and we really hope you enjoyed the show if you love the show today you can get in touch with us by searching that's what i call science or that science taz on facebook instagram and twitter my name is Ollie Dove, and I'd like to extend a huge thank you to my co-host, Simon Salopor, for her talking today and also hearing from an astrophysicist in person while we are thinking about the ethics was awesome. And our expert guest, Dr. Anne Thresher, for joining us from New York today. From us, I hope you all have a wonderful week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. That's What I Call Science is brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find the show at all major podcast streaming services and find out more about us from our social media channels. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all the exciting science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine research in Lutruita, Tasmania. This show is supported and strengthened by EDGE Radio, so head over to edgeradio.org.au for more information about them. Thanks for tuning in today, and may your week be
2: STEMtastic.